0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's... uh uh, Deep Astronomy Hangout, my name is Tony Darnell, I work at deepastronomy.space and today we do this every Thursday where we get together and either we discuss the future in space travel or space exploration, going to Mars, uh, the ISS, what are our efforts to getting uh, human beings up into space, and on alternate Thursdays we have the Astro Coffee Hangout where we talk about the latest discoveries in astronomy from professional astronomers. And so these are, these are, and Harley will tell you just a little bit more about this in a bit but the uh, these hangouts are co-sponsored by the American Astronomical Society and the American Astronautical Society both of whom put on different aspects and this one the Future in Space Hangout is done by the American Astronomical Society so I want to thank them for their support they provide this as a service to their members to get the uh, word out about astronautical things owe interest and so today after this July 4th holiday we're all done looking up as we often do uh, on the on the deep astronomy but we while we use Usually you look up at the stars and the planets. Yesterday we were looking up at least the United States and fireworks. We're done with that. And now we're going to talk about going to Mars. And this particular topic, uh, we will be discussing how are we going to afford it? What efforts are being made to afford uh, such a huge endeavor? Uh, It is and it is expensive, as, as I'm sure you can all imagine. And so my guests today are going to have been doing some work along those lines. They're going to tell us what they're coming up with building and hopefully come constructing an architecture that lets us afford going to Mars, doing some cool stuff and getting back uh, safely again. So let me, uh, let me pull up my co-host, uh, Dr. Harley Thronson. Hi, Do- hi, Dr. Harley. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and- Hello. Good afternoon. It's good, to, it's good to see you and you put these together for us every other week so you want to give a brief intro to the hangout and sort of what the spirit of these guys are
1: sure, sure. and again thank you as you've already done to the american astronautical society which sponsors this i'm um, in order to inform interested listeners about some of the latest work the latest results in human and robotic exploration of the cosmos sounds great and it is all right the background to this is that for decades, I mean at least since the 1950s in a serious way, um, NASA, partner agencies elsewhere, academia, um, industry, have been examining, debating, discussing uh, how to send humans to Mars. And no doubt about it, it's going to be an expensive endeavor. And there is a mythology around which we are going to break, during this discussion that it is unaffordably expensive, unambiguously expensive, but not unaffordably expensive. And we've got um, two individuals who have been leading teams, been part of teams and developing scenarios and architectures and costing scenarios and architectures to send humans to Mars, um, Joe and John, and let's Let's introduce
0: them. Okay. We'll do. Okay. Before I do that, let me just real quickly mention, we want you to interact with our guests and with us. And you can do that by look, by go by obviously the live uh, chat on YouTube, as well as our discord server. The link to the discord server is in the description box. So please uh, interact with us in each of those two ways. I already see a lot of you guys there. Uh, Christian ready. Well, I haven't seen you in a while. Cheers guys. Um, yeah. First time on one of these hangouts. Well, welcome. Also Peter Q is there. John, Galaxia. Lots of people are here. So welcome everybody please ask our guest questions and but you need to know first who they are so let me start i'm just going on my little screen here from uh left to right first up is uh is john Connolly. he works at nasa's johnson space center hi john uh you're you to give a little brief introduction into uh, who you are and what you're doing with uh, in respect pr- to our topic today
2: all right thanks tony uh well i head up uh, nasa's uh, human mars study team uh we're not an official program so all you can be is a study before your program so uh right now uh, nasa has um, a, a team looking at what the best way is to get humans to mars what are the options are and whenever one of uh, these exercises come up um, to um, see how we can make it more affordable we certainly uh, participate in those exercises so, um, so my team is basically always on the lookout for new technologies, new techniques for getting folks to Mars. Also making sure that the stuff we're doing here in the near term, like Gateway, is focused at, uh, at getting us there. Uh, it's not taking any wrong turns. And, um, and so uh, what we're going to talk about today is a little bit of work we did on affordability and, and in general, why, you know, why Mars is hard but maybe not, um, not impossible. Yeah.
0: Okay. And all, and by the way, let me just add that I'm really jelly of that model in the background. That looks really cool. Okay. Uh, Also with me is uh, Joe Cassidy. He is from Aerojet Rocketdyne. We've seen both of, both of these guys have been on Hangouts before, but the last time Joe was on, we were talking about electric propulsion uh, techniques for getting uh, like trucks, you know, cargo to Mars and things like that. Uh, So welcome back, Joe. Uh, Give us a brief intro on who you are and what you're doing in respect to today's topic oh, oh yeah, thanks yeah, yeah um yeah, you're there
3: yep i just got the clear mute there uh thanks tony um i as you said i work in aerojet rocket uh actually here in the washington office and one of the things about the stuff that john was talking about that we do and i should say i also am part of a group called explore mars uh, where i serve on the board and one of the things we try to do is look at the intersection of policy which is why it's helpful to be in washington um and engineering technologies as john mentioned um and public outreach and so as we've been looking at these things um and trying to break the problem up a little bit so that we can better quantify it that's something that we then communicate out and try to as harley alluded to earlier we we started off a few years back there was a a myth out there that said it would take a trillion dollars to send the humans to Mars and get them back. And everybody just sort of bought into that without questioning it. Um, So (laughs) one of the things we always looked at was this trillion dollar boogeyman, and and I think we've effectively beat that down now. Um, So it's it's something now I think we have a better quantification for. Um, We know what the hard problems are. Um, Some of those we don't have solutions for yet, but we have plans for how to break it. Down and, and reduce the risk, and uh, and we can put dollar figures against those. And then, really, what we need is we need to show that the rate at which we spend those dollars does not exceed something like the International Space Station that we just did over the last 30 some years, and that that's within the you know the range of dollar expenditures that we're already comfortable with, so that we can set ourselves up for. To go forward on the path to get humans to mars and back i always like to say they say that because when i talk to people and you know casually over the holiday weekend and things like that and people ask me about this they always say oh but you're not going to be able to bring them back right no 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 we're going to bring the people back
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay well let me uh let me do this real quick let me pull everybody up uh okay well let's start with that joe and or john let's talk about I want to go back to this rate of spending that you just mentioned with the ISS Joe, but tell me, so we heard this sort of mythical $1 trillion to get us there. How much do you guys think it is going to cost realistically? Uh, and what kind of mission is it? Because we're talking about there's, there's like different ways of going to Mars, right? There are ways we could just do a moonshot kind of thing where we go, we spend a few weeks there and we come back. Then there's the ones where we have a much longer term presence on Mars. So, I guess I should ask that question first. What kind of mission are you trying to cost, and then how much it going to cost? John
3: could give you a good overview of our last workshop. That's that's a really great segue into that.
0: All right,
2: good. all right, all right, John. Okay, so let's start. Let's start at the beginning. Um, when you're asking about how much does a mission to Mars cost, the logical question is, well, what kind of mission? So the kind of mission that Has people going permanently and and leading towards permanent human colonization of Mars? Is it more of a uh, sortie class mission like we did in Apollo where you're going to different sites for short stays and and coming right home? Uh, Or is it something in the middle? And um, each of those has a different cost and a different cost curve that goes with it. Um, And so the last workshop we did back in December, which was called Affording Mars 5, fifth in a series, um, looked actually at all three of those, and uh, we we were interested in exactly that question. What is the, the cost difference between a kind of a quick sortie type mission, an Apollo class mission, if you will, but certainly much more than Apollo because we're out of Mars and the physics dictates you're going to be there for a while. Uh, kind of an intermediate mission, which was um, what we term a um, a science, uh, sort of a science research base type mission, where where you're going and you're you're setting up some uh, uh, some infrastructure, much like they did in the early Antarctic expeditions, um, and which is still going on today. So you have field camps that you're going back and forth to uh, with subsequent crews, and uh, and then the one on the far right was a mission that was leading to to, uh, to eventual uh, human uh, habitation of the planet, permanent habitation. And there's obviously a a sequence of events where you could start with one and go to the next and the next. But we we were kind of interested in what the cost curves were for all three. And um, so there, I set up the missions. Now I'm going to actually hand the difficult question, uh, difficult answer over to Joe.
0: (laughs) And if you want me to put up any of these slides you have, just say the word. Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah. If, if, uh, if you've got the one from the FISO uh, handout that shows the sand chart, you know what the sand the chart is, Tony? Uh,
0: I'm afraid I don't. Is it?
3: Oh, it's the one with sort of the different color uh, regions that stack up to make the total. I don't know if, if we had that one. I think we had that one in
0: there. Oh, the, the AMV group one cost estimate.
3: Yeah. That's group one. That's fine. That's, I'll explain. Group 1 is basically what John referred to as sort of the Apollo sortie style with the big difference that yeah because we're going to Mars, the physics of going to Mars means you're still going to be out there a while. The sortie part is how long are you on the surface? And so I think in our case, I was part of group 1. We were looking at a few weeks on the surface um, and um, the rest of the time while you're waiting for your window to open up to come home, you're in orbit, basically. But you do get people to the surface of Mars, um, and you do have the opportunity to uh, bring back samples and, and, and things like that, that are kind of the important pieces of why we want to go and, and do some of the, the first uh, human flights to Mars. So if you pull that one up, I don't know if it's.
0: Which one is it again?
3: Oh, uh, the one that costs summary.
0: Cost summary. art right, hang on, just a sec here. Let me.
3: And and what you would see as I'll I'll start to describe it while you're looking is that we set ourselves a goal that the expenditures uh, would not exceed the current rate of expenditures that NASA has for human spaceflight operations um, with the uh, addition of I think it was uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, John. I think it was two percent or two and a half percent inflation uh annual rate
2: yeah yeah so we um, gave I, ourselves that. inflation rate yes yeah just
3: basically put on a nominal inflation rate and so we drew up we drew a line that showed that that dollar uh limit and our challenge was to try to stay under that limit over the intervening time between uh 2018 now and 2033 the best opportunity for one of these missions, in terms of the alignment between Earth and Mars and minimizing the delta v requirements, is is 2033. Um, there are other, you know, every two years, other opportunities. So we sort of set a target of 2033. If not that, then 2035, 2037 are sort of the next couple opportunities. But but what we came up with was an answer that said, looks like we could do that. We okay. could actually stay under that limit.
2: Okay, uh, I'm not
0: Joe, I'm trying to find the slide, and I don't see anything that says uh, summary on here.
2: It's it's slide 11 in that FISO deck. Thank you. you.
0: That's perfect.
2: Okay. Well, that's what I just had up.
0: Oh, Okay. Well, there we go. There we are. It's up. Can you see it, Joe?
3: I can't, actually. I'm still seeing John.
0: Oh. Well, it should be there, and
3: but... that really nice Saturn V model.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, just if you if you know the the slide, it's just trust that it's there. Yeah, out. sure. So, go so, ahead.
3: so hopefully the viewers and the listeners can see it uh, they can. out there. Uh, but, but basically, you see, I think the 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 line that shows the limit that we were trying to stay under, and the the individual colored uh, pieces are, are elements of the development that have to happen. And there was another assumption that we should talk about, kind of pertinent to the discussion, and that was that we would see the expenditures on the International Space Station drop off, and we would be able to take advantage of that wedge uh, of funding to devote to this. And so that's kind of consistent with the discussion that's going on out there right now about how long do we keep Space Station active. And, 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 you know, in reality, it's not that we're going to deorbit orbit space station necessarily, but just that we're looking at ways to take the space station and find other ways to use it as sort of a commercial platform um, or elements of it as a commercial platform so that NASA isn't solely responsible for putting the bill for the space station.
0: Okay, so the y-axis here... Somewhere in the 20... I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying the y-axis here is in billions of dollars?
3: No. It
0: says Mars supplement costs. Oh, I'm sorry.
3: Yes. Yes. There it is. Yes. I can see it now. Yeah, that's right. Billions of dollars. So typically, you know, you're, you're looking at somewhere in the three and a half to $4 billion a year range now. And, and we're, you know, we're, as I said, uh, the budget that we're uh, using for this over the roughly 20 years is adjusted for inflation. And that's that dash, uh, line that you see with the ISS equivalent budget. Uh, uh, description.
0: Okay, so the and, I, I just I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So we've got this linear increase in ISS spending going from right. about 20, the, the lower 2020s, up to through 2045, and you're projecting it to be more or less linear with a slope that's not very steep. You're looking going from about four billion to roughly seven, and but that all this Mars stuff is underneath that, and it's going up and down. With, you know, with with, I guess, when things are being built and when things are being launched and things like that. Um, uh, but it but it needs to stay underneath your saying. And you said this at the beginning. It needs to stay underneath the spending that we've done for the ISS. Is that a goal that you've just?
3: That was uh, a goal that we set for ourselves because we, you know, again, we were trying to bust this myth of unaffordability, and our our assumption, our our. Um, sort of going in position was, if we are willing to commit to a long-term program similar to the space station, and if the budget per year is not, you know, that much more than that was or equivalent in terms of that, oh, it was 2.6 percent inflation, now that I can see the chart, um, then we believe that that's not uh, something that people would balk at, uh, people being both the public as well as the congressional stakeholders. Um, and we have had a lot of support for that. So what this shows is it is quite possible to do that and to have a Mars landing in the 2030s um, and then, you know, a series of those leading up to what we call a long-stay landing. So that, again, this was group one. This was a, a more of a sortie approach at first, but building the capability toward where we could stay longer uh, and sort of go into what John referred to as the outpost type missions where we send people to the surface for hundreds of days.
1: Yeah, let me note one. Um, thing. Let me yeah. note, note one thing um, here that these series of AMs, achievable and affording Mars, for the interested folks in the audience, um, these series of reports and presentations are available on the Explore Mars Incorporated right. website. Folks can use yeah. their browser to search for Explore Mars Incorporated and look under their um, dropdown under projects and you will see you can pull up your choice whatever whichever one of the am workshops you want um and this one is will will shortly go up so folks can look at the numbers themselves and debate among ourselves or themselves um the um the assumptions uh and the results of this activity
0: okay now I, well, let me go back. To, I'm sorry, before I go back. Uh, so you guys have the, according to this, you're estimating the first Mars landing. And this is against a Group 1 type mission, which is, uh, what was it again? What's a Group 1 mission?
3: So it's uh, similar to like an Apollo style sortie. But, uh, you know, again, going back to what John said, you're still out there for a thousand days. I mean, it's, it's about a seven month transfer out. You're in the Mars vicinity uh, for um, a period of like several hundred, 400 days, let's say, and then, then it's seven months back. So the total time you're out there is going to be around a 1,000 days. Your time on the surface is limited, and that actually helps us in a lot of ways because of the, the, the uh, capacity for uh, uh, the, uh, the landers that we have to have to go down if it's just a few weeks on the surface obviously you don't have to take as much stuff down to the surface to support the crews um, and uh, that was the that was the ground rule that we went in with on this group was to limit that um, and but I'll say this the other two groups looked at the mission that John referred to as outposts, as well as uh, the, the final group looked at sort of human colonization approaches and what you see is the rate of doesn't necessarily change dramatically. The time scale is longer before you can actually. And, and so, you know, if you look at these sort of as a, as a uh, rubber band type.
0: Okay, so please correct me if I say this wrong, but the big takeaway from this graph is that we can get to Mars. We could do a crude moon landing test. We can do a Mars orbit mission test. We can do one, two, three landings on Mars through 2045 and stay underneath the budget that we currently spend adjusted for inflation on the International Space Station. We can do it.
3: That's the, that's the takeaway from this in the early 2030s. We're well below that line. So there's actually room to support some additional technology development or potentially even add some capability to those missions, um, in that area that you see as sort of the valley, uh, between 2030 and 2035.
0: Okay. Um, all right, guys, I just want to have, I have to ask this. I'm in a bit of a mood, again, we all are, because we just got through learning about the cost of the James Webb Space Telescope mission, and it's going to be really, really, really expensive and really, really, really delayed. So how confident are you of these cost estimates, and how can you even possibly know what some of this stuff is going to cost? I mean, I'm sure that by now in 2020, The mid-2020s and even the 2030s when NASA wants to get to Mars, boy, the climate, the cost of things. I mean, what do you guys talk about in these meetings about how confident you are in these cost estimates?
2: All right. I'll, I'll, I'll take that first. So, first of all, cost estimating is somewhat a black art, especially when you're trying to estimate the cost of something you've never, ever done before. Um, I'd love to see the initial cost estimates for the Apollo missions, for example. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, I think we, we can do better than that today because we do have experience with human spaceflight, but it's true. We've never built a Mars lander. Uh, we've never built a interplanetary spacecraft before. So our cost estimates are based on things we know how to build, extrapolated out for what we think the extensions of technology and, and things like that are. So. Um, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't think the confidence is very high, but it's the best we can do right now. <clears throat> when you're trying to build the first thing ever of a certain uh, certain item, uh, like the James Webb Space Telescope, it's very hard to estimate the cost of it because you literally have nothing to go by. And so, um, so you're exactly right that um, the cost estimates we have are, um, they're very good for comparing um one architecture to another architecture because they're all costed out the same way but as far as the absolute value goes um you know you you have to you have to accept the fact that there's a lot of uncertainty in there just because this is all new stuff okay yeah I, go, go I, ahead, Joe.
3: tony let me just say that I, I agree with john in one sense on the other hand one of the things that we are trying to do especially group one <laughs> we didn't use a lot of new technology. You know, we, we we had the other hangout where we talked a lot about new propulsion technology. That's right. And we didn't get as exotic as some of those new propulsion technologies that are out there. We used pretty much all standard stuff, except for the cargo. We did use a solar electric uh, tug to get some of the cargo out, um, but it wasn't a really high power system. So we were kind of looking at, Starting with things that we do build today and extrapolating only so far. And, and that helps a little. Everything John said is right. It's just we're trying to be a little bit careful not to say, um, yeah, we can get a multi-megawatt nuclear electric propulsion system and, and, you know, the crew goes with the cargo and it looks like the thing in the Martian. It's not going to be like that.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, since one of the things is affordability and our spending on the International Space Station, keyword on international and in this one, uh, we're not looking, you guys aren't looking at doing this by ourselves. We're not looking at NASA and Aerojet Rocketdyne or the United States doing this on our own, right? Can you right, talk about yeah. the international component of what you're planning? Who else, um, Who else wants it, to go to Mars?
2: <laughs> well, a lot of folks do, it turns out. Um, <clears throat> a lot of folks want to go back to the moon too. Also, so uh, there is there is a logical progression that starts with the partners on the ISS, then goes through the moon and on to Mars. And um, I think you're right that uh, there's no way that a a uh, mission to Mars will be done, you know, by one country right. like we did the Apollo program. I think. Uh, Making the Mars program uh, kind of equivalent to the ISS the way it was shown on the cost chart is really good because not only does it sort of show that we could do a mission like this in about the same with about the same resources we spend on ISS But it also gives you an idea that to do that You need the same kind of international commitment or maybe even greater international commitment that we have for ISS and so uh, international partnership is gonna be one of the huge pieces of making this affordable. Um, there's other pieces too, uh, getting the, the, uh, the commercial space um, folks involved. That's, uh, that's, that's new and that's, um, that's something that's very exciting. Um, also um, going with reusable vehicles. Uh, that's, that's something new to, to NASA and um, you know, SpaceX is proving that they can do that pretty well and um and then i think there is another element about testing stuff on the moon um in getting ready to to go to mars that will um drive maybe cost a little bit but will certainly drive risk down
0: okay now did i, I you may have mentioned this while i was searching through the powerpoint slides uh but i want to know are we pl- are you planning on using the uh, space launch system or some you mentioned re- reusable rockets just now. Um, are we looking at maybe using one of these companies' reusable rockets to get us there? What's yeah. the What's the backbone? It, are you that you're it, planning it,
3: on? It, it's a mix, really. Um, we looked at. Uh, I'm again speaking for Group One, but I think it was true John and the other two groups too. We had SLS as kind of the backbone, but we also had uh, frequent opportunities for commercial launches. Uh, to support, the, and you, you flashed up the one uh, thing we call a BAT chart a while ago, Tony, that showed a lot of uh, uh, sort of uh, subway map-like uh, connectors uh, with launch vehicles on Earth and things going into intermediate orbits, and when you look at that, if you look at that uh, graph or that chart again, you see on the bottom several SLS launches. I think in, in Group One, if I remember right, we had about five SLS launches, and about five commercial launches.
2: So it was almost a 50-50 thing. I see. All right, so if you show slide 17 from the FISO deck, Tony, that's, uh, that shows the VAT chart that uh, Joe was uh, alluding to. And if you notice, that shows a combination of uh, commercial vehicles and NASA SLS launches. And I think, I think that's, that's pretty accurate that it's gonna take a combination. Uh, a, yep. Mars, a Mars mission just requires a lot of mass um, delivered to orbit, uh, to get started. I mean, and most of that mass is fuel. And so there's, there's really, really good opportunities for, um, for commercial delivery of piece parts and fuel and things like that. So, so I think it's going to take a mixed fleet to get us there.
0: Okay. Uh, here, I'm sorry, it took me a while, but my computer is, uh, my computer is, is at its peak. Uh, yeah. So, um, all right, well, it, you can have to explain this because it's, it's a lot going on here.
2: Um, okay. Uh, so uh, a bat chart is a classic NASA way of showing a mission profile. You have the Earth on the bottom. You have your target planet on top. As you launch things from Earth towards the target planet, they kind of hang off the, the target upside down like bats. So that's the name, bat chart. Uh, but if you if you look across the bottom you start out with all the earth launches and and if you notice on this particular chart uh, they've lined up uh, a Blue Origin uh, launcher a SpaceX launcher and I can't tell what the other one is exactly uh, another commercial launcher uh, probably one of one of Joe's um, and uh, and the idea there is that these are opportunities for uh, commercial uh, vendors to, uh, to provide launch services for these missions. And then you can see there's a, a couple, uh, where you need some very big, um, payloads like NTP stages and, um
0: We're trying to zoom it up for you here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks. And, and move along. So, I mean, and, uh, on.
2: and you show, so, uh, some of the big pieces might need, uh, the biggest launch vehicle we have. And if that happens to be SLS at the time, then that's, that's what we'll use. But uh, if you notice, it's not exclusively SLS launches. It's not exclusively commercial launches. It's the uh, it's the whole fleet. Yeah. Okay. All
0: right. Let me just zoom this back down
3: a little bit. Yeah, I think one of the principles that we kind of are, you know, tripping to is we need the best of what everybody has out there to do something like this, and that includes the international partners. Some of them are very good at certain elements of this too and and we're really finding that there's a nice way to bring all these things together And don't reinvent the wheel there's, there's just not enough time and money to reinvent the wheel you got to take advantage of things that people know how to do best and john said it well with some of the new commercial folks coming online are showing the ability to do reusable and other things like that definitely want to take advantage of that too
0: okay yeah all right um all right well so the uh Um, I'm trying to, I'm just looking at some of the, some of the, uh, uh, questions here. I want to get to some of them, uh, here in just a minute, but, um, okay. Well, I asked you, I asked you about your confidence level. I asked you about the international capabilities or the international interest. And you said there was quite a bit, um, the thing I've noticed about NASA, and uh, I know they, they seem to have to do everything with this, well, whatever the political winds are, we're going to need to be agile enough to ride that wave, right? So right now, it's all about the moon. It was about Mars, but now it's about the moon. We got to get to the moon. We got to have lunar stuff. And so everything, but NASA goes, okay, well, you know what? It's not a big deal because all the stuff we did to go to Mars also gets the moon. Um, at some point you know you have to say well we're going to mars or the moon and this is our plan now your first chart that i showed you did have some moon stuff in it is that working into your cost of going to mars or is that just a separate thing now because it's going to the moon it's not going to mars
2: well joe that was a that, that was a group one chart so why don't you explain what yeah you...
3: sure I, I, it, tony it's it's interesting um <laughs> Before it was all about the moon, we were already still talking about something that in those days we refer to as the proving ground. And and if you look back, uh, I could send you the charts from uh, five or six years ago. um, We were talking about sending things out into cis lunar space because uh, I mentioned earlier, you're going to be on a thousand day journey. Um, There's no way to turn around and stop and come back if something breaks on your way to Mars. So you want to check all those systems out first and really make sure that the systems, especially the ones that involve crew, are well uh, rung out before you jump off on that on that big jump out to Mars. And so really it is on the pathway to Mars, and it always has been. Um, there's been a little shift in the emphasis, but I think what I, the way I would say it is now, what we can do with the moon in terms of the infrastructure there will help support other people who want to do things Relative to the Moon, like commercial folks who want to go do resources on the Moon or whatever, we'll support that through the infrastructure we build up. But at the same time, that infrastructure helps us ring out the things that we need to ring out uh, and, and get working before we make the jump to Mars. And that could include things like going, you know, down with a lander that we want to use on Mars. Um, we're actually going to do a workshop. <laughs> Coming up here, now's the plug. This, <laughs> this is the part of the show where we do the plug. <laughs> um, we're going to have Explore Mars and AAS are going to put another workshop on at the end of uh, August timeframe
2: where we're going to look
3: at um, how can we best use the moon to go to Mars and what are the things that we can do on the moon that will support going to Mars. And um, and I think that's you know really been something we've thought about doing for quite a while, not just the the bad of the hour.
2: Okay. Yeah, so if I could add to that, Tony, um, you know, if you look at uh, an overall exploration architecture that uh, somebody like NASA might advocate, um, you could go directly from uh, the Earth to Mars and uh, not do anything at the moon. Um, My opinion, that would be a very high-risk mission. um, And... um, you know, and maybe you accept that risk, maybe you don't. If you wanna buy down the risk a little bit, there are things you could do on the moon to test systems, to test pieces of hardware, to test operations um, that will uh, make the, the Mars mission um, a, a, a lot less riskier. And so, um, like Joe said, that there's a, we're, we're actually holding a workshop to answer that very question. What are the logical things you could do on the moon uh, to get you to Mars? Now there's a lot of illogical things you could do on the Moon that don't get you to Mars. And you know some of those may be valuable as well, but since uh, we're talking about Mars, we're talking about the subset of all the things you could do on the Moon that are, no kidding, the most applicable things you could do there that have real value to getting to Mars. So I, I think there is a, a logical place for the Moon on the path from Mars, just like there was a logic in doing Mercury and Gemini before Apollo.
0: Yeah, I can right. imagine things like yeah. ISRU or in-situ resource utilization uh, okay. experiments on the moon would be handy to be then go to Mars. That'd be something I'd like to see done anyway. But um, okay, well, in your cost estimate, when you are, by the way, I, I got to laugh at Andrew Planet's question. He's asking, why don't we send much smaller assets?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Hey, we so, that. Why don't we send much smaller astronauts to Mars using technology that is also reduced in size, so save costs all around? Just send, just send little, little guys, little, little, little astronauts out there. You guys actually looked at that? Is that what you said, Joe? No, I was just
2: kidding. Oh.
0: <laughs> it's like funny, I shrunk the kids, right? Andrew. right. Yeah, that's funny, Andrew. No. So, but, so but, there, I it's there, there is there is
2: there is some logic to that. Uh, oh, I so mean, the uh, Apollo astronauts were
0: actually they had height requirements. They couldn't be taller than like five feet right. something. Right.
2: They they were about uh, no bigger than the 50th percentile American male, and right. uh, the current current astronaut class typically ranges from the 5th percentile female to the 95th percentile male. So um, to be inclusive. Of people of stature, uh, we've have uh, actually expanded. Uh,
0: Sizeist <laughs> man.
2: We've we've expanded. Uh, you know how how big and how small astronauts can be. Um, it, sure, if uh, if it's smaller, people consume less food, less oxygen, and all that. So uh, there is some.
0: And everybody knows logic they have bigger tempers, though. But,
2: but uh, that's that's not in our current plans.
0: Okay. Well. Um, okay. So back to the cost estimate. Now, thank you, Andrew. That was a good question. Uh, the <laughs> The role of private companies. Obviously, they're taking a lot. I mean, President Trump wants to uh, contract out a lot of the ISS stuff as soon as possible uh, to private companies. NASA is looking into doing that. Um, do When you figure out what something costs, I'd like to know what role private companies play in this and do you just use them as contractors? Do you just say, okay, SpaceX, we need you to do a launch to the moon Uh, for, and uh, you know, what, what's your bid? Is that how you do it? Or do you think that maybe they can take it on as a, some kind of profit making thing and this hand the costs off to of them? I mean, I don't, I just wonder what role private companies play in this. Is it just contractors or are they do you have a more, integrated role
3: yeah i'll just throw out one example i think that john this is a good one maybe um i i mentioned entry descent and landing earlier um in something like that that something we've never done before or we now well, we've done it at up to a certain level with our uh rovers that we have on mars now but that's about one metric ton and we have to land about 20 metric tons to support human scale uh, expedition human landers Uh, so it's a big jump and we know we can't do it the same way we're doing it now so things come into play like supersonic retro propulsion and I I like that example because right now what does SpaceX do when they bring the boosters back Well, they're doing supersonic retro propulsion and they've done a lot of the NRE work the non-recurring engineering they're getting data that they're I think believe John is true they're sharing with NASA and NASA doesn't have to do that. NASA doesn't have to pay for that. Um, NASA can take advantage of that data. I mean, they may have to pay a little something, but but it's not like they're the only ones looking at that and funding it. So you're taking advantage of the company's own interest that they have for doing something completely different, but you're applying it to the problem that you're trying to work which is, and it turns out that high up in Earth's atmosphere where they're doing a lot of that, it's a good analog for Mars. So you don't have to go
2: to Mars to test this stuff out. You can
3: do it up in the high, uh, less dense parts of Earth's atmosphere. So That's one example of how you can use a private company to accomplish something that you want to do. And, and, you know, you can also, you know, buy services from them. That's true, too.
2: Yeah. Right. So it comes in many flavors. Uh, We have commercial companies out there um, doing individual technologies like supersonic retro propulsion uh, that certainly... Benefit what we want to do to land on Mars Um, And maybe more importantly we have companies out there developing entire capabilities space launch capabilities That uh, used to be be done by the government and now we could simply buy those services from uh, private companies and We're currently working on on uh, for example um, Lunar lander delivery services, you know that that's that's a huge next step Um, not to quote someone famous, but um, a giant leap yeah. uh, when you think about it. We we will have companies here in the US Who will have the capability to land things on the moon for us? That's a, a capability that only a couple Nations in the world have right now and that that's pretty outstanding actually that we have that kind of commercial base um, and uh, and it's kind of exciting because that actually frees NASA up from um, from being a kind of an operations uh, uh, company, you know, and and processing through lots of uh, lots of you know hardware uh, to actually spending money on the stuff way on the on the far edge of exploration. So I, I'm very excited about what's happening in the commercial world because you know that's the the role of government is to seed those kind of companies and when they succeed to get out of the way and, and purchase services from them
0: okay i'm going to ask one plots question and then i'm going to slightly rephrase it uh into a into a related but different a little bit different he's asking what are you looking at when it comes to human costs radiation protection psychology muscle waste training Um, how will this impact costs for preparing astronauts and i guess i'd like to reword that just a little bit to say when you're doing this cost analysis you break things up into different categories of what into certain percentage, like launching things costs this much of a percentage of getting us to Mars, Uh, um, uh, you know, habitats cost us another X percentage of getting us to Mars. What percentage of the human protection scheme uh, goes into the cost of a a mission? Well- Is it a big one? Is it a little one? No,
2: it's surprisingly small. because of the physics of, of moving around in space, propulsion is always the dominant cost. That's the biggest, okay. All, yeah, all of, the, all of the systems that it takes to um, keep the, the crew happy and healthy all fall under a, um, uh, a category called human health and performance. And mass-wise and cost-wise, um, that's, that's actually kind of a tiny sliver of the whole cost pie. Uh, it's important.
0: That's a little surprising, though. Yeah. You would think that things like human subsystems, breathing a- environment, atmosphere, food, waste—that'd be quite a big part. But it's not. You're saying?
2: Well, uh, e- Ecos. When you get into environmental control, Ecos. Yeah, that's, that's oh, that. If you include
0: more. that, it, okay. I was just asking about the safety okay. part. So yeah, right. Okay.
2: Uh, but then all the other things like radiation protection and exercise equipment and um, uh, medical equipment and food and and all those other things. um, you know in terms of the big the big picture the big uh, the big cost phi, those are actually you know a, a very small sliver of the whole thing, very important of course, and we've got to do it right but uh in you know when you're talking about moving around uh in uh, interplanetary space and everything you're talking about is is in units of kilometers per second of of velocity change for one maneuver or another propulsion uh cost of propulsion is going to dominate the cost world
0: okay uh to what extent do the, oh I'm sorry did you want to comment joe
2: oh i was gonna i was gonna throw in another
3: little kind of add-on to that which is um you know getting back to what we said earlier we're not going to do the big nuclear electric spaceship like in the martian but uh, we're also not going to have artificial gravity like they did either. So, you know, there spinning, are A, spinning,
0: a spinning, spinning...
3: Yeah, we're not spinning up the spaceships or anything like that. Uh, it, it, that could come later. You know, we're, what we're doing is we're setting up for the... Well, trying we're trying to get that on the, team. the 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 crude vessels for the Lewis and Clark expedition. We just want to get out there and see what's out there. And then later on,
0: people will figure out how to build the, you know, real fancy ways to, to go in comfort style you uh, can you imagine what it would be like that mission thousand days and it's going to be uncomfortable long and you're trying to do this in a cost-effective way it's you know it'd be nice to have some artificial gravity but no uh you got to yeah. go without so that brings me to contingencies when you plan on the cost of something do you take what sort of contingencies do you think about let's say. Gosh, we don't want them to get stuck on Mars, so we have to build X number of failsafes and backup systems, such that they are sure to get off of Mars. How how does that go into the thinking, and where where is the most where is that in the budget? Is it in the return phase, or is it just throughout the whole mission?
2: Okay, I'll, I'll go first, and then okay. Joe could fill in. Um, Every time we do a spacecraft design, there's a, a certain uh, amount of um, redundancy uh, assumed in the design. Um, when you get to certain systems, the amount of redundancy, uh, redundant systems, or or dissimilar redundancy that that will take the place of that systems uh, increases. But um, you know, so there's there's built in uh, redundant systems to all these uh, all these estimates that we do now. That that's kind of on the piece part level. Uh, when you start talking about big things, like maybe a failed launch, let's say that you're you have a launch vehicle on the on the pad and you're launching a lander that's going to Mars and something happens and and that lander doesn't make it to orbit, do you have contingencies in your cost estimate to uh, to handle a failed launch attempt? And um, um, typically, we don't put those in our cost estimate. Um, Perhaps we should because there is actually you know some good statistical data on on launch vehicles, and you know every so often you, you know one's one's maybe not going to make it um, but uh it, it we're cognizant of it, and we um we look at it in our planning what what is the um what what is our answer to uh like a failed to launch and so uh and, and usually what the answer is well you just kind of slip that mission to the next opportunity uh, rather than having another launch vehicle standing by to to make up for it.
0: Joe, do you have anything to add to that as far as contingency planning?
2: Yeah, I'm
3: just looking a little bit at our report that we did for the group one uh, again. And one of the things that we did do is we built in what we call block redundancy. So we had a couple of different stages that you would use if you went all the way to Mars. We had the ability to use those also in abort scenarios so that, you know, we, let's say we got to Mars and there was a problem and we didn't want to stay, we had the ability to use those to get home more rapidly and uh, and that sort of thing. So um, it was something where we took that into account and that would have been something that was included uh, just by definition in the budgets that we showed you earlier. So that was part of the overall architecture of the, of the group one uh, spacecraft.
0: And did you say at the top of the hangout that this sort of presupposes, I mean, this chart we showed earlier showed that you're spending less than the ISS equivalent budget per year adjusted for inflation, which went anywhere from 4 billion to 7 billion through 2045. Uh, uh, are you, um, are you sort of, what I guess what role is the ISS going to play in this? Does that money have to become free from the ISS before we can spend it on this? Or is this another pot of money? Are you depending, yeah, for example, it, on the fact that the ISS is going to be decommissioned and, and run by private uh, company and not NASA? Is that how you're going forward we, with your thinking?
3: We've showed it as something that, you know, what what's on the books right now is a gradual phase out. And you know there was a proposal this year in the budget to stop it in 2025, which we don't think is. I, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but you know, there's different people with different dates. But what we I think assumed was a phase out by about 2028, and so that budget is going down in terms of the NASA spending on it. Um, and and what you saw in that sand chart reflected that.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, I want to remind everybody: you are watching a Future in Space Hangout, sponsored by the American Astronautical Society and uh, endorsed by the American Astronomical Society. And we every week we come and we talk about aerospace and aeronautical issues in our Future in Space Hangout every other week. So I want to thank them for uh, joining us. My guests, my guests today are uh, John Connolly from NASA Johnson Center Space Center and Joe Cassidy uh, from uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne. Both of these guys have been working on trying to get us to Mars in an affordable fashion and debunk the myths that it's going to be a trillion dollar thing Um I, I'm i actually quite amazed guys at what you've come up with and that this is actually something that can be done I remember I think it was in the 90s I heard somebody put a price tag on going to Mars at 300 billion and this was I think a number that just I think somebody just said but this is actually uh, spread out over what is it uh, 20, 2025, 2030 20, 30 over 25 years or so we're spending much much less than that so that's pretty good um even if you're not i mean let's say you're only within 20 percent this is still this is still a pretty affordable thing isn't it right so what's the political okay i'm gonna ask it you don't have to answer it um what's the political will for this kind of thing uh, is NASA, you guys just don't think about that or you just need to be ready when someone tells you to do oh, something? Oh,
3: we think about
0: it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. I'll, I'll put my... Yeah, uh, you don't work for NASA, mind.
0: Joe. You could say. Right,
3: I don't work for NASA, but I've got my <laughs> Explore Mars hat on. So now I'm a nonprofit guy, right? Yes. Uh, as I said earlier, we worry a lot about the you know outreach. How do we get to Capitol Hill? Every year we deliver a copy of our Mars report to every congressional office. Every single Congressional office gets a copy of the Mars report. Um, And what we're telling them is this story, that you can do this, that it is affordable. Um, And we're seeing a lot of results from that. I I really believe, you know, there's support for this on both sides of the aisle, um, both houses of Congress. We don't get a lot of people, uh, I mean, every, every Congress has somebody who says, oh, you know, there's better things to do than space, you know, in general. But as far as Mars goes um, I think a lot of people are somewhat inspired by the idea that we could take uh, this as a long-term goal and set the goal out that set foot on Mars in 20 or so years and, um, and and there's been some real tangible progress I mean you look look at NASA's budget over the last few years it's not decreasing it's not flat um, it's Actually, been increased. That is that is and quite Congress encouraging. Congress usually takes what the president proposes and gives them a little more.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know that's it's, so, it. Has been a nice surprise. It has uh, been. Okay, yeah. Professor Professor Masters Karen Masters from uh, Haverford College is uh, asking some questions from her students. They're watching uh, uh, this hangout from their classroom, I think. Uh, and one of the questions is, how much more than the early cost projections do crude space missions cost? How much more than the early cost projections do most crew? Uh,
3: sort of a, a rule of thumb, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah. What do they generally cost?
2: Boy, good question. So you'd have to go back to some missions that we actually did cost estimates for and then actually flew. Um, so um, there's there's some good history on space shuttle, what we originally thought its cost per flight would be, and and its actual cost per flight ended up being quite a bit, more than that i'm sure there's some <laughs> estimates on uh on what we thought the space station would cost and and what uh what that's uh, ending up being um, and then most recently um orion is uh, orion and any of the commercial crew vehicles i i don't have those numbers on top of my head but um, it's almost guaranteed that whatever we estimated them for the actual cost is higher once yeah. we actually did it. I know. And, and again, I, that's just that's just the unknowns in our business. Um, we're 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 really pushing the the envelope here and whenever you're dealing with uh equipment that's never been designed before, never been flown before, it's very hard to use uh cost estimating tools that use analogies um to find to find the right answer. So So we do the best we can, but we, we prepare ourselves for the fact that, you know, it might likely cost more than that.
0: Right. I mean, even, you know, I'm I'm just, even if this is an order of magnitude estimate, the main point here is that this isn't infinitely expensive. As Harley said at the top, this is actually something that can be done. Uh, We're getting a handle on what they can cost within some error bars. And uh, I think, I think this at least is telling the story that it's not going to break the bank, especially if we work together uh, as a, as a planet instead of as a country to get this done. Right. She's asking another question. Does the development of 3d printers make missions like this more feasible than they used to be? Because there's this yeah. place there's this place called made in space. They print up things on the international space yeah. station and they're making parts. Uh, yeah. Is there a role to play? And does that go into your yeah. cost estimate?
3: I got, I got a real good specific Aerojet rocket dying example okay. on that one. Um, we're applying additive, we call it additive manufacturing. Uh, same thing, 3D printing. Mm-hmm. We're 3D printing major pieces of our rocket engines now. We're going to use on SLS, we're going to use the same rocket engine that was used on the space shuttle so as the main engine on the orbiter. Um, we're going to get the cost on that down by a large percentage, I'll say. I, I probably shouldn't say the exact number because Somebody at NASA will write it down, and I'll be on the hook to hit that number. <laughs> but, uh, but we have made major strides in using additive manufacturing. Um, rocket engines are, if you ever look at one up close, you see a lot of little pieces and, and wires and, and uh, tubes sticking out. And one of the things we can do with additive is we can... hundred separate parts that had to
0: Just a couple more minutes. I want to get to these last few questions. Questions from question from a student. I think his name is Sam. Um, How heavily dependent is the plan that you've come up with on new technology development? For example, uh, for radiation shielding. Uh, So we all know JWST. uh, You know new technologies. uh, Blah blah blah. But you know how how dependent is are you on knowing about these technologies?
2: So, I think it varies uh, we We talked about three architectures at the very beginning, and Joe mentioned that uh, one of the architectures was very low technology, you know current technology, and so that didn't affect, that didn't depend very much on uh, on big technology advances, whereas some of the um, the ones as you go towards permanent colonization of Mars depend very heavily on things like institute resource utilization and others um, in terms of radiation protection. I, I think we we pretty much have that i we know that you know there's a certain amount of mass and the cert, the right kinds of mass that you have to add to a spacecraft and design it the right way to get the uh, the radiation levels down to uh, to a reasonable amount and um, you know there's just certain types of radiation that are very in, very hard to shield against regardless of what you do in fact a certain Certain kinds, the more shielding you add, the worse you, you make the situation because of secondaries. And so, uh, so I, I think there's a it, it, you know there's a broad spectrum of um, how you apply new technologies to the mission. And as you apply new technologies, that's yeah, true, usually the the overall cost comes down a little bit because it gets a little lighter and everything's about propulsion and moving mass around. Um, but you have to absorb the cost of that technology too. Okay, I'm,
0: I'm going to ask the last question because we're out of time. This is a good one to uh, end it with. What are you guys' opinion? How real, This is from one of the students in the class? Uh, how realistic do you guys think the Martian movie was? Give me your give us your opinion. Start with you, Joe.
3: Okay, so you you heard a couple of comments I made earlier probably about the spaceship and uh, you know, the types of things. Uh, you know, some of that was a little bit more what I call second or third generational. Yeah. But in terms of um Crew on the surface. Oh, the windstorm. uh, Everybody has a
0: problem with that. Everybody has a problem. Yeah, the air
3: pressure just isn't that strong. You know, very it's one one hundredth of our pressure. But but um, I liked a lot of the stuff. I I, I'm an old uh, satellite propulsion guy. So hydrazine. You know, he got the hydrazine out of the out of the uh, the engines that he that he was using that to generate. A lot of that was very well done. Andy Weir's, I just read Artemis. I just
0: read I'm just i reading it film. now. I'm reading it now, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he does a lot of good research, and he, he basically
2: his stuff is pretty good.
0: John, what did you think? Was yeah. it very realistic?
2: Parts of it uh, were. <laughs> uh, I, I think uh, maybe the most realistic thing was the series of challenges that you'll have yeah. during a Mars yeah. mission that you constantly have right. to overcome. And you're right. The, the the scene at the beginning. Andy wrote that because he needed some big event like that to precipitate one person being left on the surface uh, with an antenna sticking in them. Right. Uh, but 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 generally, <laughs> as he was going through writing that book, uh, he was writing it as a series of blogs, and we were keeping track of this, of course. And uh, he he did a lot of good engineering as he went through that, and uh, and so uh, we gave him a few hints along the way. You know, he was always getting uh, inputs from people. Uh, and then one day, all his blogs ended up in an ebook, and like about a, an hour later, he had sold the rights of the book to Hollywood. Yeah, and so uh, a good he, story. hes a good engineer, so he does his homework.
0: My favorite scene was when I—he went. I think it was—I don't know if it was Sojourner or Pathfinder, but he goes. To one of the oh, old, yeah. the old, and he and he uses the camera to to, to communicate. That was my favorite scene. I love seeing those that old those old yeah. rovers that you know just and the fact that he got it fired up. Maybe that's a little unrealistic, but still, that was a great idea. Um, okay, well, we will stop there. I want to thank you guys so much for taking time out. You guys are awesome. I'm, you guys are great for coming on these hangouts. So I do appreciate it. My guests today were Dr. were John, Doctor John Connolly, and uh, Joe Cassidy uh, for. Uh, uh, John is from NASA Johnson Space Flight Center, Space Center. I keep wanting to call it Space Flight Center. And uh, Joe Cassidy is from Aerojet Rocketdyne. These guys are working on trying to figure out how much it's going to cost to get us to Mars, really, and can we do this? And the answer is, yeah, it's a lot cheaper than we thought if you take yeah. into account a lot of these things. And And I yeah. think their projections are realistic. What are you showing there?
3: Uh, it's my little sticker and it says 2033 we can do this
0: ah okay we can do this Uh, I want one of those Um, yeah so uh, it, it can happen it Obviously, we all know the, the realities of getting things done uh, with with uh, political will, all of that. But we all want to go to Mars, and it's going to happen. And we just got to – but at least these guys are solving the biggest problem, which is how we're going to pay for it and how much is it really going to cost. And they're laying the groundwork for getting us there to Mars. So thank you guys very much for your work. I appreciate it. Um, my – Next week, folks, we're going to have Telescope Talk on Wednesday, where we've got uh, uh, Jason Major will be one of our guests. We're going to be talking with him and, and uh, talking about imaging and and, and uh, processing and things like that of astronomical images. Uh, I don't have a Astro Coffee Hangout topic planned from Carol yet, but the following Astro Coffee Hangout is going to be awesome. We've got we've got the art we've got the author of a paper that I think came out in ApJ talking about whether or not climate change can be a great filter or, as, or or a solution or an answer to Fermi's paradox of why we haven't seen anybody. It's an interesting paper. I'm doing a space fan news on it right now, and that'll be toward the end of the month. So you, you want to make sure you check that out. Okay, folks, I want to thank all of you guys for watching. I want to thank the AAS for sponsoring. Thank you guys for the great questions, and keep them coming. Hopefully, I'll see you guys next Wednesday and Thursday with more Telescope Talks. Thank you all so much for watching, and as always, keep looking up. Okay, we did it. Thank you, guys.